Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. Here's to season three of Killer Destinations. Hey, Kathy. Hmm? You know what makes the best gift for Patreon? (laughs) Could it be Christmas? (laughs) That is the answer. (laughs) Go to (laughs) patreon.com. But the website's a little bit confusing, so you have to go to patreon.com, not christmas.com. I totally ruined the joke with that one. (laughs) But Patreon's also a great gift for Christmas, too. It certainly is. So... Go to patreon.com, search Killer Destinations, and feel free to share the love with your friends. (laughs) Okay, on to the episode. Is that a yes? Because they can't hear you. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Nods don't count. Here we go. Today's destination is Hobbs, New Mexico. This city of more than 40,000 residents is located in the southeastern part of the state near the Texas border. The town's origins can be traced back to the early 20th century when it was primarily a rural settlement inhabited by ranchers and farmers. It was named after James Isaac Hobbs, a homesteader who settled the area in 1907. The turning point in Hobbs' history came in 1928 with the discovery of oil. This event triggered a significant population influx as people flocked to the area in search of employment in the booming oil industry. The population surge led to the official incorporation of Hobbs as a city on June 28, 1929. Throughout the mid-20th century, Hobbs experienced substantial economic growth and diversification. While the oil industry remained a cornerstone of the local economy, the city also saw the development of other sectors, such as agriculture, manufacturing, and retail. This economic diversification helped stabilize the community and provided residents with a range of employment opportunities. Today, Hobbs stands as a vibrant and diverse city in southeastern New Mexico. Its cultural heritage is celebrated through institutions like the Western Heritage Museum and Lee County Cowboy Hall of Fame, which pay tribute to the region's cowboy and ranching traditions. But in 2002, the city's enduring spirit was tested when confronted with the brutal murder of one young mother whose dreams were cut short as she was simply trying to provide a better future for her children. 26-year-old Elizabeth Garcia was working her first overnight shift at her job at Elsip's convenience store. This was her second part-time job. Elizabeth had gotten pregnant for the first time in high school, and two more children soon followed but she was now a divorced mother of three and was determined to provide the best life she could for her children. Not only did she work two part-time jobs, but she also had just started taking classes at the local community college to become a teacher. The reason she did this is she wanted to make sure her afternoons for her children were free, which is why she was working an overnight shift. In the early morning hours of January 16, 2002, 
Elizabeth's boyfriend, Jaime Pacheco, stopped by the convenience store. He worked in an oil field and had to be at work by 3 a.m., so he dropped in to spend a little time with her on his way. When he got there, he found the store completely empty. There were no customers in the store, and Elizabeth was not there either. Her car was in the parking lot, but he checked in the restrooms, he checked in the back office, he went wherever he could in the store, and she was nowhere to be found. So, Jaime called 911. When officers arrived, the first thing they noticed was that there were no surveillance cameras. Walking inside the store, everything was in its place, and it didn't look like a struggle had occurred. Elizabeth still had her homework on the counter, her coat was hanging on a chair, and as we said, her car was still in the parking lot. Elizabeth had either left voluntarily or was forced out, probably with a weapon. The store manager came to the scene to assist detectives. He was able to tell police that the last monetary transaction had taken place at 2.24 a.m. because the receipt was in the cash register drawer. Elizabeth had written on it that the person who had purchased these items did not have enough cash to pay for them, and she said he was also a very rude person. $12.49 was also missing from the cash drawer. The manager told detectives that store clerks wear panic alarm buttons to press in case of emergency. And Kath, from what I could tell, these are just little plastic buttons that they can hook on to a vest that they have on as part of their uniform, and they can push that button in case there's an emergency. Elizabeth's button was not at the scene, nor had it been activated that night. Elizabeth had truly just vanished. About 10 hours later, at 1.30 p.m. the same day, two men driving on a dirt road a few miles outside of Hobbs saw the body of a young woman in a vacant lot next to the dirt road. She was on her back and fully clothed, but her sweater had been pulled up around her neck. They could see multiple stab wounds. When Hobbs police officers arrived, they couldn't find any identification, but there was a unique tattoo on her stomach that helped determine who she was. Investigators noticed tire tracks in the dirt near the body and two distinct sets of shoe prints. Blood and claw marks on the ground indicated that Elizabeth had been fighting her attacker as she was dragged from the passenger side of a car. Clumps of her hair were also found in the dirt. You know what really impacted me with that statement, Kathy, and I'm sure it did with you, is it actually said claw marks. Like it wasn't mm -hmm. her fingers. I think everyone, you know what that looks like. Yeah. Detectives were able to match the shoes Elizabeth was wearing with one set of shoe prints. So, of course, they presume the other set was from her killer. They also presume the tire tracks were from her killer. Crime scene analysts used dental stone to form the molds. Now, this is much stronger, Kathy, than the plaster that was typically used. And this is something that dentists use to make permanent teeth dentures, which I thought was very interesting. That is interesting. I had read something, too, where where they were in Hobbs and especially just in New Mexico in general is that it's windy a lot. And when you're on dirt roads, a lot of times if you have tracks there, you lose them pretty quickly. Right. And that's one of the reasons they brought out these denture molds, because I guess they cure faster and they're able to take them sooner. So although the quality of the mold was very good, investigators were unable to identify the brand of shoes or tires. However, if they found a suspect, they'd be able to use the molds to help confirm identification. An autopsy determined that Elizabeth had been stabbed 56 times in her chest, stomach, back, 
and hip, and her throat had been cut. At times, her killer stabbed her with such force that it broke her bones. The coroner noted multiple defensive wounds on her arms, as well as abrasions on her face, consistent with falling down during a struggle. They also found semen in her underwear, which was sent out for DNA testing. While there were several cuts on her neck, none of them were deep enough to sever major arteries, and the coroner concluded that Elizabeth died slowly of blood loss. The level of violence used to kill Elizabeth convinced police that she knew her killer. And the first suspect on their radar was Elizabeth's boyfriend, Jaime Pacheco. He raised red flags because he did wait around for the police to come and he did talk to them about what he had seen and his relationship with Elizabeth and whatnot. But as soon as he was done talking to law enforcement, he got up and left for work. And to the police, he was doing this even though he knew his girlfriend was missing. However, police were very quickly able to confirm his alibi and they moved to the next most viable suspect, her ex-husband, Jesus Mendoza. Since their divorce, Jesus had not been paying child support for their three children, nor supporting Elizabeth in any way with the kids. So investigators knew there had to be some tension and anger between Elizabeth and her ex-husband. Jesus didn't have a solid alibi for the time of her murder, so detectives brought him to the station for an interview. According to Forensic Files 2, Season 3, Episode 11, Hobbs Police Detective Sergeant Rodney Porter said when Mendoza arrived at the station, he did nothing to dispel their suspicions. Rather than answer the detective's questions, Mendoza told Sergeant Porter, you guys don't have enough yet. I know you're going to be looking at me for this. You're going to plant my DNA at the scene, and so on and so on. Since Mendoza was immediately defensive with them, investigators believed he might be their guy. They arrested him on an unrelated charge, and while he was in jail, he phoned a friend. And investigators knew this might be the evidence they needed, because during this call, Mendoza appeared to implicate himself in Elizabeth's murder. Police were, of course, monitoring the calls, and they heard Mendoza tell the friend to get rid of certain articles of clothing and a specific cell phone. Investigators needed just one more thing to close the case. They needed to confirm the shoe and tire prints found at the scene matched Mendoza's. But they didn't. Mendoza didn't own any shoes or tires that matched the molds that had been made. However, just to dot all the I's and cross all the T's, detectives took a DNA swab and submitted it to the crime lab. Then police got an anonymous phone tip about a man named Stephen DeMoss. DeMoss apparently had been yapping to anyone who would listen about his plan to rob an Alsip's convenience store. And of course, Kathy, he was high on meth when he was telling all his friends about this. As one would be. Exactly. Police searched throughout the city, but weren't able to find DeMoss, so they located his sister, Shelley, hoping she could help. So his sister, Shelley Lovett, and her husband, Paul, told detectives that the three of them used to be close. But her brother, Stephen DeMoss, had a very serious drug problem, and they didn't know where officers could find him. And Kathy, you know what's interesting is while the detectives were talking to Shelley, they learned of a connection between Shelley's family and Elizabeth Garcia, the victim. I couldn't tell from the documents I was reading if Shelley and Stephen had the same dad. 
I don't believe they did. But what was said as part of this article I was reading is that Stephen's father, Randy, knew Elizabeth and was actually very infatuated with her. So we had talked about Elizabeth having a second part-time job other than the convenience store, and it was actually an auto parts store, and that is where Randy met her. So, of course, he's infatuated. He sends flowers to her at the auto parts store, goes in whenever he can, and just tried to spend time with her. Detectives were able to track Randy down, and while he admitted he was infatuated with Elizabeth and sent her flowers, he denied any involvement in her murder. Do you have any idea how old Randy was? You know, I never read how old he was. Okay. Although he had a solid alibi, he did agree to provide DNA for testing. But the more the police learned about Stephen DeMoss, the more they thought he was the right guy. He was known to own quite a few knives, and shortly after Elizabeth was found, he shaved his head, which they thought was odd. Did you ever see why? I didn't, and... Like, did he shave the rest of his body for, like, a DNA thing or anything? I have no idea. I felt it was maybe to hide his identity, but I don't know. I have no idea. According to Hobbs police detective Mark Conger, when they finally tracked Amos down, he was naturally not cooperative. He twisted questions, he tried to be evasive, and Detective Conger felt like he was trying to toy with them. DeMoss told investigators, maybe we talked about robbing an Alsup store, but we didn't do it. He admitted he knew Elizabeth and said his dad knew and liked her, but his dad didn't do anything wrong. The detective took DeMoss's DNA and searched his home and car. There were no matches to his shoes or tires. Then, when the DNA on the four men we've mentioned, Stephen DeMoss, his father, the boyfriend, and the ex-husband, were finally run through the system, no matches came back. Detectives were back to square one, and the case went cold. Sixteen months later, two oil delivery men were driving on a road just outside of Hobbs, when they found a man lying on the side of the road. He didn't have a shirt on, so they could see scratches and blood all over his chest and pants. When the oil men walked over to this bloody man, he told him that he'd been at a bowling alley the night before and talking to this girl named Patty. A few guys then came over and started harassing Patty, so he jumped to her defense. The next thing he remembered was waking up in a ditch on the side of the road. Since the man said he had a knot on his head, was clearly scratched and bloody, and seemed really shaken, one of the two oilmen offered to drive him to get medical attention, but the man refused and asked if they could just take him home. After dropping him off, the oil delivery men immediately called 911. They just heard a news report on the radio that made them think this man that they had just picked up and dropped off could possibly be involved in something criminal. The news report said earlier that same day, this is May 14th, 2003, workers found the body of 35-year-old Patty Simon, a mother of four. She was found dead in a caliche pit on the outskirts of Hobbs. And Kathy, why don't you tell people what a caliche pit is? Because I know I didn't know. Caliche is a white or light-colored rock and it's used for gravel in East Texas and other places in Texas. Kathy and I were talking about this because when we were growing up, we had like these white rocks in gardens. Yeah. And that's in quotes. 
but these aren't those bigger rocks. They really are like gravel pieces, but it's a certain type of gravel that's being used. And that's just the name of the stone. Patty was nude from her bra line down. Her shirt was pulled up over her head so you couldn't see her face. Her legs were spread and her underwear was around her ankles. Patty's car was parked at the scene with a lot of blood found in and around it, including in the trunk. A cigarette butt was found sitting in the opening to the gas tank, and police collected cigarette butts found on the ground in the area. One footprint was found near Patty's body. According to the coroner's report, Patty suffered severe blunt force trauma to her head and neck. She had a broken nose and several skull fractures. One of her eyes was ruptured, and there were numerous lacerations, bruises, and other injuries to her arms, hands, and the rest of her body that were consistent with defensive wounds. She also had obvious injuries to her legs and genitalia. These injuries were consistent with, but not necessarily conclusive of, a sexual assault. The coroner reported that there was a large gaping wound across the upper part of her throat, and either the cut to her throat or the blunt force injuries caused Patty Simon's death. Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie. And even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell. I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange, and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. Or crazy. A little bit. <laughs> so if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash killer D. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. The police had already started investigating Patty's death when they got the 911 call from the two oilmen. After hearing about the man who they'd driven home, the police rushed to the man's house. When officers arrived, the man answered the door. He was still shirtless, and the officers could see scratches on his arms and shoulders. Because of the timeliness of the 911 call, the man hadn't yet had a chance to change his clothes or take a shower. The man, now identified as 23-year-old Paul Lovett, who was the now ex-husband of Shelley, who was the sister of suspect 
Stephen DeMoss, was standing in front of them. Paul Lovett agreed to an interview, and once at the station, detectives obtained a search warrant to take certain samples from him, including blood, hair, and a penile swab. During this first interview, Paul Lovett told a different story than the one he told the oil delivery men. Lovett told investigators that he and Patty had met at her workplace the day before so that he could buy some meth from her. She didn't have any on her, but she knew where she can get some. While they were sitting in a car waiting for her to make the deal, a man came up whom Lovett did not recognize, but who clearly knew Patty, and he threatened Patty with a knife and demanded that she give him some drugs. Now, they had not yet made the deal, Calf, so Patty had no drugs on her. Lovett told investigators that he tried to punch this man, but the man slashed at his shirt, causing the scratch marks police saw on his torso. Lovett also told detectives that the man made Patty drive her car out of town onto a gravel road. While there, he hit Patty with something, causing her to bleed from the back of her head. Then, the man forced Lovett to drive with Patty in the passenger seat. At some point, the man hit Lovett on the back of the head, and the next thing he remembered was being in the trunk of the car without his shoes. He told detectives that he passed out again and woke up on the side of the road with his shoes now on. After the interview, detectives released Lovett. About a month later, detectives conducted a second interview with Lovett. They just said, tell us what happened from the beginning. Detectives expected him to start with the night Patty was killed, but to their surprise, he said, hmm, the beginning? That goes back to January 15th of what year was it? Kath, January 15th was the day before Elizabeth Garcia disappeared from the Allsup's convenience store and then was found murdered the next day. Paul Lovett told detectives that on January 15th, his former brother-in-law, Stephen DeMoss went to see him and had been terrified that he was going to be framed for a murder. DeMoss told Lovett that he needed DNA to put there, so Lovett gave DeMoss a condom with his sperm and several pubic hairs in a bag. For those of you who have stopped vomiting, <laughs> <laughs> Lovett told police he thought that DeMoss was the person who killed Elizabeth Garcia and that DeMoss shaved his head the next day because people were after him. After discussing Elizabeth Garcia's murder, police again questioned Lovett about Patty Simon's murder. Lovett began the story as he had during his first interview with the police, but he added the detail that the man who hit Patty was named James. In this version of the story, however, James did not knock Lovett out and put him in the trunk. Rather, he made Lovett get into the trunk and close the trunk lid. Lovett remembered spending hours in the trunk after the car came to a stop. At some point after Patty was killed, the man opened the trunk and ordered Lovett to pull Patty from the car to the spot where she was later found. Rather than receiving all of his scratches from the man slashing at him with a knife, these are the ones on his torso that the police saw, Lovett told police that he inflicted the scratches on his own arms in an attempt to kill himself, which is funny, Kathy, because most of the slashes were on his torso. Later during the same interview, detectives suggested to Lovett that DeMoss was the assailant who tried to rob Patty and then killed her. Lovett agreed with this theory and said DeMoss was the person who hit Patty on the head. 
With DeMoss as the alleged killer, Lovett said he was never trapped in the car's trunk. Instead, he remained in the car with DeMoss and Patty. When they all arrived at the Kalish pit, Lovett said he just walked away because he didn't want to see what was going to happen there. Kath, what Lovett didn't know, was that Stephen DeMoss's DNA had already exonerated him. On June 26, 2003, about five weeks after Patty Simon was killed, Paul Lovett was arrested and charged with her murder and criminal sexual assault. Bond was set at $1 million. Six months later, in December of 2003, Lovett was also charged with the January 2002 murder and kidnapping of Elizabeth Garcia. Prosecutors were seeking the death penalty. In January 2005, three years after Elizabeth Garcia was killed, her family sued Alsop's convenience stores to fully compensate the estate of Elizabeth Garcia and her children. The suit alleged that Elizabeth was murdered and her children were left motherless as a direct result of Alsop's intentional acts and omissions. Now, Kath, this was in reference to the company not installing any surveillance cameras, as well as the fact that they didn't allow employees to work together, especially during the graveyard shift. And apparently, police and employees asked multiple times for the company to allow them to do so. There had also been a couple of murders at an all-subs convenience store in the prior five to ten years. Oh, I didn't realize that. Was that also in New Mexico, do you know? Yeah, they only oh. had eight stores in New Mexico, I think, at the time. I don't know if they're, actually, I don't even know if they're still in business. But at the time, I believe New Mexico was the only state they were located in. Oh, okay. Trial began in March of 2007. Lovett's attorney moved to sever the trials for the two women. But after a hearing, the trial court denied the request and both cases were tried together. Now, Kath, this is sort of like law school 101, as you know. <laughs> yes, and it bores me. <laughs> you know, defense attorneys don't want to try cases together, especially in a murder situation, because you're very fearful of the evidence in one polluting the jury's mind for the other. Or maybe there was more reasonable doubt than in the first murder, for example. For Elizabeth Garcia's murder, at trial, the prosecution brought various experts to the stand to testify about the physical evidence found at the crime scene, which included DNA from her underwear. Experts confirmed that it was Paul Lovett's DNA in the semen found there. In addition, his ex-wife Shelley, who now went by Shelley Terrell, was called to the stand. She testified about the evidence she provided to police that linked her former husband to Elizabeth's crime scene. Kath, shortly after the interview that Shelley, then Lovett, and her husband Paul had with detectives when they were trying to find out information about her brother, Stephen DeMoss, Shelley told the jury that Lovett walked out the door as soon as the police were gone. He came back just a little while later and said, it's over. I'm leaving you. I'm moving to another state. Goodbye. And as she watched him walk out the door, there was a car outside waiting for him that had another woman and a baby inside. The other thing is, is that one of the detectives, and this wasn't at trial, but in a different interview, he said that when Paul Lovett's name came up, the two detectives who had been there interviewing Shelley remembered him because it was just the two of them in their house. Paul was sitting on the couch 
And the entire time the detectives were there, he was sitting there with his head down. He would not look at the detectives and he did not say a single word to them. That is so bizarre. Yeah. Like he had nothing to say about the fact that they were looking for his brother-in-law, Stephen. Nothing. And like I said, he didn't even make eye contact with them as well. He wasn't just like sitting and looking up straight, glancing, but not, you know, like with his eyes downcast. His whole head was down. Interesting. So once he was arrested, the search of Lovett's home revealed no shoes or tires that matched Elizabeth's crime scene. And detectives asked Shelley if she had any photos of her ex-husband, Paul, from around the time Elizabeth was killed. Shelley showed the jurors a picture from a family event in which Lovett was wearing sneakers. The pictures didn't show the bottom of the shoe, but it did enable investigators to determine the make and model, and it was a Nike Air Integrity. When they compared the soles of this model of the shoe to their molds from the crime scene, it was a match. Shelley also provided jurors with a link between her husband's tire tread to that tread which was found at Elizabeth's crime scene. She told the jury that Lovett's car had been sold, but she still had the receipt for some tires they'd purchased about a year before Elizabeth was murdered. When detectives checked the make and model listed on the receipt with the tire tread molds, they were also a match. Investigators found Lovett's shirt, which was bloody, under a pile of rocks near Patty's body. DNA on cigarette butts found all around the crime scene matched Lovett's DNA, and Patty's blood was on Lovett's shoes and underwear. After a three-week trial, on March 16, 2007, jurors deliberated for four hours before declaring Paul Lovett guilty for both murders. Almost one month later, the sentencing hearings were held. Lovett was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Elizabeth Garcia and 18 years for the rape charge associated with Patty Simon's case. Now, because Patty's murder had been eligible for the death penalty, a separate penalty phase was conducted. The jury had to determine if Patty died during the commission of the rape, and they also had to decide unanimously beyond a reasonable doubt to impose a sentence of death. Eight days later, the jury decided that for the murder of Patty Simon, Lovett should serve a life sentence. And the two life sentences, the one for Elizabeth and the one for Patty, would run consecutively, which meant 27-year-old Lovett had to serve at least 60 years in prison before he would be eligible for parole. Kath, I was shocked that they were running consecutively. I know that that does happen, but so much of the time we'll see like five people being murdered and right. all of the sentences are running concurrently. Right. And concurrently means at the same time. Consecutive is a back-to-back. It's more right. punitive. Paul Lovett's attorneys appealed his convictions and argued that the two murder cases should not have been tried together. As we mentioned earlier, before trial began, his attorneys filed a motion to sever the cases, which after a hearing, the judge denied. The issue at hand was cross-admissibility of evidence because it walked a fine line of simply introducing bad acts from another crime to sway the jury. So basically is what you'd said at the beginning of this. You don't want cross-contamination. As a defense attorney, you always want the weaker case not to be polluted by the bad evidence against the defendant in the stronger case. When the Supreme Court justices considered whether all the evidence from Patty Simon's trial would have been admitted if there was a separate trial for Elizabeth Garcia's murder, their conclusion was no. 
on August 24, 2012, this is now more than five years after Levitt's convictions, the Supreme Court of New Mexico reached a unanimous decision in the case. The court affirmed Levitt's rape and murder convictions for the death of Patty Simon, but as for Elizabeth Garcia, a new trial was ordered. In 2014, Paul Lovett was again tried for the murder of Elizabeth. And while the jury was instructed on the elements of first-degree murder as well as second-degree murder, so the prosecution was sort of hedging their bets here, the jury did return a guilty verdict of first-degree murder. Lovett was again sentenced to life in prison. The New Mexico Supreme Court justices affirmed Lovett's conviction on appeal for first-degree murder. He is currently serving his sentence at the Guadalupe County Correctional Facility in Santa Rosa, New Mexico. And just to backtrack a little, on April 9, 2008, so a little over six years after Elizabeth Garcia was murdered, her family reached a confidential settlement in their lawsuit against Alsup's convenience stores. According to an article in Law.com, the parties went through an entire trial including closing arguments. The trial focused on the security practices of Alsop's and the role it played in Elizabeth's murder. The settlement agreement occurred during jury deliberations, and it turns out, Calf, it was reached just minutes before the jury was set to reveal their award. Although we do not know the number reached in the confidential settlement agreement, one juror revealed that they were prepared to award Elizabeth's three children, then 13, 11, and 10 years old, a total of $51 million. Dang. I know. I can't imagine how her attorney felt. Well, hopefully they still got a good deal. I mean, honestly. I hope so. $51 million is like lottery money. And we all know that a lot of good does not come from lottery money. And the truth is, who knows if Alsips could have paid that anyway. They probably couldn't and have. And on appeal, it might have gone down. The all of those thing. kinds of things. Exactly. And plus, this ended it for the family so they could just put it behind them. I totally agree. In a letter from Elizabeth's family to the jurors, they said that Alsips had agreed never to challenge convenience store safety regulations in New Mexico. According to the family, this was something Alsips was never willing to agree to until the jury entered into deliberations following a two-week trial during which the facts of Alsips' operational policies became public. Hope you enjoyed it. And we're really sorry that your aerobics class was much longer than the story. (laughs) (laughs) Hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Definitely. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.